I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 23, 2014, ho, ho, ho edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll hear from various local art impresarios who offer some cultural fare to lift your spirits and move your soul over the holidays. Patrons, start your engines. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest returning now, I believe it is for the third time this year, we've had lots to talk about, is the Executive Director of Museum of Latin American Art, Stuart Ashman. Talked about two different Cuban exhibitions, and Cuba will be the topic of conversation after we have a look around the Museum of Latin American Arts offerings there up in Long Beach. Uh, <coughs> Stuart as uh, he is originally from Cuba and he repatriated to the state some time ago. You've all heard the introduction before. So we're gonna split it up between what's going on for people to see over the holidays, along with uh, some reflections since it's very topical now, what's going on because Stuart's been in the mix of this, these transactional uh, logistics that I can actually say for myself have, are, are unwieldy from my own limited experience. So we've got lots to cover in this third of the show. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Stuart Ashman. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Well, first exhibit we should mention is Marcella or Marcella Armas's Resistance and Vortex. We're going to mention that first because that's leaving shortly on January 4th. That's right. And this is an exhibit of a contemporary artist from uh, Mexico City who... Uh, has a show which is in two parts. One is uh, an electrical line, which is a drawing of the Mexico-U.S. border, and it's electrified, so you can't get close to it. Uh, and, of course, it talks about how it's an electrically charged situation between um, the border states and uh, the United States. So um, that's part one. Part two has to do with uh, recycling of paper, uh, and how absurd uh, archiving has become, uh, and you know it includes a video that has tons and tons and tons of paper being uh, recycled into more and more paper. So it's a very interesting piece, uh, and she's really an up-and-coming contemporary artist. It's in our project space, which is where we allow uh, emerging artists to uh, make a proposal and then put up a show. Okay, that's the first I've mentioned. Then, Esteria Segura, that was the topic of our interview here together earlier this fall, and he is going to be running there until just, it's past January. It's actually till the day after Valentine's that, Day. Right, so, and that, we had a chance, and folks could look up at the podcast about that when Stuart and I were doing this interview uh, in November, right around the opening of Estelio Segura's installation, and he was also had some space in L.A. that you were uh, you were helping open right after your opening at MOLA. Is that That's still correct. there? Yes, February the L.A. 15? spot is coming down, but the show is here at the museum until February 15th, and, you know, he has both of the temporary galleries with some very interesting works. Estelio deals with, he, you have to read between the lines in his work, but he deals with the issues of migration, of the issues between the um, the problems caused by the embargo. Uh, he's very critical of his own government in some ways, uh, in a subtle way. Um, for example, he has a book, I mean, he has an, a, a sculpture of Pinocchio uh, with a very long nose, which uh, wraps around him like a rope. And yes. Pinocchio is standing on... Uh, about 30 books, and the books are about uh, Marxism and communism and the uh, the revolutionary heroes and so on. So basically what he's saying in some way is that the lies will bind you. Uh, and, and then he has a piece, the main piece in the exhibit is from a series he called Goodbye My Love, which are these red fiberglass hearts with wings. And they talk about how... Um, Cubans want to leave the island. Uh, they have a dream of coming to the United States and living a better economic life. But the truth is they're saying goodbye to their beloved island. 
so there's a kind of a bittersweet feeling to them. And they're painted this bright red, so they kind of look like a Valentine's chocolate box. Uh, but, you know, they're huge. They're 10 feet in, in uh, the wingspan is 10 feet uh, on these things. So they're flying uh, from the ceiling. Uh, so it's a very exciting show. Then he has a whole series of drawings, gigantic drawings, some are seven feet across, of these submarines made at home. Yes. And what, what these are about is Cubans are known for their innovation with uh, American cars. You know, there's a lot of 50s and 40s cars in Cuba that are still running, and really it's by, by the Cubans' uh, inventiveness that they still exist. And so pair that with the idea of migration. And so the invention is to take one of these American cars and make it into a submarine. So he's got all of these um, drawings of 50s cars converted into submarines. Some of them have people's signatures in them, which is a way of saying, I'm getting in that submarine. Right, right. Traveling. So... That's another piece of uh, of what he's doing with his work. Uh, it's very interesting, and he's you know very dynamic guy. He shows um, a lot in Europe, but this is his first United States Museum exhibit. And in the theme of the holiday visits, I want to stress for everybody. Stewart sort of uh, downplaying, but it, or it wouldn't he wouldn't go there? I will go there. It's my style. Like that, it's a for something for everybody. There, it, it's visually, it's really accessible, and it's very profound in the same way. So your your party of six will be uh, satisfied, folks. Uh, you bring them all over to to Mola to look at Estéreo Seguros, and we are going to pick up that theme in just a bit too with Cuba in a bit. So there is also, uh, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is MOLA Executive Director Stuart Ashman, pretty fresh, uh, back on Ask a Leader, here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in uh, museum galleries all over the land over the holidays at KUCI.org on that web. So there is Transformations, curated by Carlos Ortega. That's now, it's, that's just been recently opened, the middle of like a week and a half ago, and that goes until the um, until May. I th so uh, let's talk about that huge range of offerings there. Yes. Well, Carlos Ortega is our curator of collections, and yes. you know this is the permanent collection gallery, and he uh, he uh, proposed uh, a new approach to showing the permanent collection. Usually, permanent collections you say you know landscapes from our collection or selections from our collection or abstract paintings from our collection. And, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, most people bypass those galleries. So he, he did a call. This, is, this show is called Transformations. And what it is is, um, is people who have had major life-changing transformations. Uh, and so he did a call to interview people who had had major life uh, events that transformed them. And he interviewed about 15 people, and he picked five of them. Uh, and then uh, they tell their story on video, and then they select paintings from the collection that represent what, they, what speaks to them before the transformation and after the transformation. And one example that I can cite, which is really uh, pulled yes. at your heartstrings, is this Please. beautiful young woman named Rocio, who, when she was eight years old, was aspiring to be a ballerina and had gotten a scholarship to go study dance. And she and her father were standing outside, um, and there was a drive-by shooting, and she got a spinal cord injury, which left her without the use of her legs. Uh, and so that was the the trauma that happened in her life. And at some point, she realized that she had to work with what she had, and she decided to, paint, to dance with her paintbrushes and became a, quite a wonderful artist. And so now she's got paintings from the collection on the side that represent who she was before and who she has become. Stuart, I have to ask, does, does Frida Kahlo's name come up in her, in her own narrative? Well, you know, I don't know if it comes up in her narrative but or it's not. There. But some of her paintings uh, are really very similar in in that uh, angle of, you know, having had a trauma in her life that, that changed her work. And that she danced uh, and, through and it, yes. There's there's some 
Italo-esque stuff in her in her work. Wow. For sure. Okay, good. Well, that's good. That's great. Well, then um, there is there are a number of things in store for next year. I know we're going rapidly through this, folks, but we have so much uh, we want to make sure that you have, you know, is served up on this plate of plates that there will be uh, the Clarissa Tosin Streamlined Belterra Amazonia, uh, Alberta, Michigan. Tell us a little bit about that, Stuart. Well, this is uh, an artist from Brazil who uh, was recently featured in a show at the Hammer Museum, and we have a proposal from her uh, to do an exhibit, uh, and she's going to do one of her conceptual pieces. Uh, the piece that she did at the Hammer was uh, she she bought this old Volkswagen Brasilia, which yeah. is uh, actually the name of the capital of Brazil, right. but it's a politically charged thing because it was, you know, a con- an invented capital. Uh, right. And and she loaded it up with uh, swimming pool cleaning cleaning equipment, and she poses as a she does a video where she poses as a swimming pool cleaning person. So it talks about well. Know, class consciousness and all of that kind of thing. Uh, so that's the piece she had there. She actually had the videos, and the car was at the hammer. So we're looking forward to seeing what she's got for us in store uh, because she's a very innovative uh, young artist. Okay, giving us, the listeners, a little space at the boardroom table here of putting uh, this uh, next uh, this coming up, upcoming exhibit together. I appreciate that. Then there's uh, another one for next year, Mexico. Fantastic Identity 20th Century Masterpieces from which collection, Stuart? That's from the FEMSA collection. FEMSA is a is a corporation uh, and foundation in Monterrey, Mexico. Okay, that's And they right. have one of the largest collections of Latin American art uh, in the world. These are the people that uh, uh, they used to bottle most of the beers in Mexico, but now they're the Coca-Cola bottling company. Uh, and they also own all of the glass bottles for all of the beer that comes out of Mexico. They're glass manufacturers. And uh, the the collection is masterworks from Mexico. So it's going to have Diego Rivera. We have a Frida Kahlo painting in it. We have Orozco, Siqueiros, uh, Leonora Carrington, Manuel Alvarez Bravo, Graciela Iturbide. It's really a who's who in Mexican art through the times. Uh, so we're very excited about that. We have a catalog that's going to be published, uh, and that show opens in March, and it'll be there through June. All right, folks, you have every opportunity to put that on your calendar. Well, we are talking this morning on the the cultural fair, the holiday special I do every year, folks. I'll do. I'm sure I'll do it again next year. But we're talking with Stuart Ashman, who uh, we're now segging out of. The cultural fair, and Stuart can come back to any of those if you want to make other references to that, um, that I want to open up all the way. Uh, Stuart, you were originally from Cuba. You traveled there many times with the People to People tours, and it's interesting. People now know a lot more about those People to People tours uh, since last Friday. Uh, so uh, you were uh, probably a week or less than a week away departing there before the big announcement of the the whole diplomatic change between Cuba and U.S. So I, I imagine you wished you were there a little bit longer just to be there for that. I wished I had been there. I, w- I left on Monday uh, morning, and the announcement was on Wednesday. That's right. Unbeknownst to everybody, it really was pretty amazing that this, this very positive forward step came through with the um, release of Alan Gross, the commuting of the sentences of the Cuban Five, and the promise that uh, diplomatic relations are going to be restored between the two countries, which is, in my opinion, long overdue. Well, you are a Cuban expat. Are you con- do you consider yourself a Cuban expat? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I, so what I, uh, I I wanted I was thinking of exploring the whole idea about the the management practices that are about to change but maybe what why you're you're positively disposed to this and not, and of course expats are all over the map about this uh, is there something special about your leaving Cuba that uh, you have uh, you're you're more receptive than many of your contemporaries are well you know my family didn't really suffer any particular hardship uh, we uh, were not wealthy people we didn't lose property or homes or businesses 
my father was an employee um uh so we my parents saw uh leaving as an opportunity to gain uh to live the american dream to have the economic benefits of being in the united states um and um the uh eisenhower declared that cubans could come and to this day it's still true uh have immediate residency uh, that probably will change now that we have diplomatic relations. Sure. Because the idea was that you could come and uh, you were a politi- political asylum. And so he announced that in June and we came in September, but not for any political reasons. In fact, my father kind of lamented leaving Cuba at that oh. time because it seemed that for the first time there was a government that was uh, more fair and less had less corruption than we he had seen in previous years. Right, right. That part. So, yes. So, you know, I, I think that uh, the majority of, I mean, people, the majority of people are not even aware of their relationship and, and how deep the embargo uh, goes because, you know, for example, Cuba is one of the largest producers of nickel in the Western Hemisphere, and nickel is a right. metal that's used in the automotive industry. And uh, the embargo is so far-reaching that if Toyota buys nickel from Cuba, they can't sell Toyotas in the United States. Right. And so it's, so, you know, you're not our friend, so uh, anybody who's your friend is not our friend, too. Right, right. And that has hurt Cuba in a lot of ways. And it's also, in some people will say that it's been used as an excuse. But uh, an excuse or not, I mean, the... Things are not available in Cuba because um, they're just not. There's just no commerce with the United States. You have to realize that Cuba is a little island with 11 million people, and it's virtually surrounded by the United States on the north, east. Well, it's not the east and west, but the north is all of the United States. Ninety miles all, away from Key West, I, or right? Something and only like 300 million people. So. Right. And I think most people are sympathetic. Cuba has kind of a a cachet as being a fun place. And, you know, we love Cuban food. We love um, Cuban dancing. We love Cuban music. Uh, so it's about time that we start sharing those things. Uh, and, you know, they've achieved some things in their government that merit looking at. You know, they have universal health care. They have free education, you know, can send your kid to medical school and you're not saddled with a hundred thousand dollars worth of bills when they graduate um, I mean yes they, they paid a price for it but um, I think it merits looking at yes, uh, well, from our perspective well I, I hope I, I wasn't counting on you to cover all these institutional sorts of explanations because and I'm hoping we can uh, take that up uh, there's a, a, a retired uh, economist in uh, in our midst and I'm hoping he might feel like reflecting a whole hour on all these things. So I was wondering if you would tell our listeners what you are expecting is going to change, be the game changer for you in uh, bringing Cuban art to all of us, not just uh, not just Long Beach and Southern California, but uh, artists are going to have their their day finally with uh, uh, lots of American patronage. So uh, talk to us about those inefficiencies with which you had to deal, like with... Like for instance, Estéreo Segura, that had to uh, have his many many of his shipments to his New York and his Californian exhibitions have been unwieldy complicated by this embargo. So let's start yeah, with well, that the, inefficiency. You know, the one thing that'll help is that there'll be better transportation between uh, the countries. Art has always been exempt from the embargo. It's considered informational material. So in theory, you know, art could move back and forth. However, you may have to prove that it is in fact art uh, to export it or import it, uh, and and the airplanes that fly between the United States and Cuba are the largest is a 737, so right. they can't handle big crates of art. So generally, you have to put them on a jumbo jet and send them to Europe. Uh, so they go to Europe and then come back to the United States, which obviously adds tremendously to the cost. Um, so. And, and I think there's been a reticence from uh, gallerists and um, and museums.
museums to get too involved in Cuba because of the kind of scrutiny. There's no banking relationship, so you can't, you know, pay somebody in Cuba to 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 pack and crate things. You can't pay somebody to frame things, uh, and all of that I think is going to change. Uh, and gallerists are going to feel like they can import Cuban art without any problem. Uh, and you know, there's there's such a um, a glut of work coming out of Cuba, uh, and I mean that in the most positive right. way. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, that uh, I think the market's going to get full. Well, the Cuban art. The market also will be aided by the fact that we no longer have to deal with cash to to compensate the artists. That will be able to use credit cards and that kind of thing. And that'll open up because uh, it's very odd to be running around with that. You know how many hundred dollars uh, with you, or, or, or euros or Canadian uh, currency. So uh, that um, all of these things lead to uh, supporting them, and uh, that, I mean, I'm going to marvel at that. And so it's, uh, and I just wanted to say that Estero Segura's exhibit, there, one of the pieces had uh, been, I believe it was broken. You had to reconstitute the whole, one of his um, big, those voluminous red uh, structures there. Yeah. So. Right. Um, so those. Yeah. So, you know, I think all of that kind of thing will improve vastly. I mean, it'll be more normal. You know, it's it's like if you want to deal with Mexican artists, you don't have any problem. You right. can put it on a truck. You can put it on a plane. And it's you so close. You fill out the customs forms, and here it comes. Um, and I think the public is ready for it. People are hungry for uh, Cuban culture. They want to know what's going on there, uh, and you know, I've taken hundreds of people there right. on on Treasury Department licenses on these people-to-people programs, and people are always amazed uh, at uh, how vibrant that community is because you expect, you, you know, from what you hear that you're going to end up in North Korea, you know, that everything's going to be gray and everybody's going to be miserable. Hardly. And in fact, Cubans are all very happy and People of all, women of all shapes are wearing right. uh, spandex, you know, in bright colors, and uh, it's just a great, uh, a great culture. So you know, the people so are very warm and receptive. So your exhibits have been of the very established Cuban artists. Uh, the, your exhibits in the past. So what I think this might allow you to do is to bring on lots of new Cuban talent. So doing us a favor to let us see it and doing the new artists, uh, the lesser established ones, a favor. So if it's all a, it's a win all the way around for everybody. Well, I just want to give everybody a chance for, for more information about the MOLA offerings. Just go to the web at mola.org. They're in Long Beach right there off of the 7th Street exit, folks, and just keep going, going, going till you're downtown practically. And, I, Stuart, I want to thank you for making special time. Uh, this my guest for this portion of the cultural fair for the holidays is Stuart Ashman with the Museum of Latin American Art. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, happy New Year. Thank you, Merry Christmas, and happy holidays to you. Okay, thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. We'll be right back with a an interview I did with Malcolm Warner from the Laguna Art Museum. Be right back. Don't go away. Como y donde tú siempre me respondes, quizás, quizás, quizás. Joining us next is Laguna Art Museum Executive Director Malcolm Warner, who joined the museum nearly three years ago in January 2012. Previously, he was the Deputy Director of the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, the senior curator at the Yale Center for British Art and curator of European art at the San Diego Museum of Art. Raised and educated in the United Kingdom, Malcolm Warner received his PhD from Courtauld Institute. He comes to us fresh off a recent installation, another successful exhibition on the main beach with Lita Albuquerque's and Elongated Now. Malcolm Warner returns to Ask a Leader with the Laguna Art Museum's offerings for the holidays and beyond the new year. Welcome, Malcolm Warner, to welcome back, Malcolm Warner, to Ask a Leader. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Well, folks, it's another gem here where I recommend setting aside enough time to take in the marvels 
of an expansive array of media and uh, the installation was something for everyone in a genuinely good sense. I mean that too. So why don't we, since we were just speaking of Lita Albuquerque, let's start with her installation, The Particle Horizon, which will go from now until January 18th of the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Lita Albuquerque, who's a great uh, Los Angeles artist uh, who does installation pieces, performance pieces, all kinds of different kinds of work. She did uh, this wonderful performance piece on the, on the beach, main beach here near the museum that involved 200 people dressed in white. It was a spectacular thing. And um, complementary to that, she also created an installation in one gallery inside the museum, which is still on show. That remains on show until January the 18th. And it really is a magical place that she's made from our lower level ga gallery. Uh, the, there are projections uh, across all the walls and the columns that um, make this space. It's rather an interesting space, actually, but it's all, it becomes the night sky through uh, project uh, imagery. And um, in the center of the room is a reclining figure in um, Lita Albuquerque's sort of signature color, which is this wonderful deep blue. The, the figure seems like almost like it's representing the, the concept of enlightenment and an, an awareness of the cosmos, which is a, a big theme in Lita's work. So it really is a very moving experience to sit there and see this, the heavens revolving around this figure. And uh, there's an auditory element, too, because Lita Albuquerque uh, has recorded some of her own poetry that chimes in with the, the theme of the, um, the, the, the visual display. And I note uh, Lita Albuquerque is a product of both uh, Southern California, born there and raised in Tunisia and France and educated back again in Southern California with an expedition. I guess that might be what influences a good deal of this installation, an ice desert in Antarctica and was it 2007. So that's, it's a real marvel, uh, that particular gallery in the downstairs of the Lagoon Art Museum. Yeah. Well, Lita's in a, a long tradition. You know, sometimes people think of this kind of outdoor spectacle type of art that she, like she did on the main beach, as being something that's new and re really kind of wacky. But uh, actually, artists through the ages have been in charge of creating um, great spectacles, um, both religious and in the in the context of um, court life. Sometimes back going back into the 17th century, back to the Renaissance, and so on. So, it, there's nothing. Um, kind of um, outlandishly contemporary about this kind of work. And um, same goes for installations, too. I mean, uh, for an artist to work with a whole room instead of just creating a piece to go in a room, that has a long history in, in art. So um, we're very proud that those traditions continue and that they're alive and well in the hands of artists like uh, Lita Albuquerque in California. Well, Malcolm, let's move next to Elizabeth Turk's Sentinel forms, it too goes from now until January 18th. It's a solo exhibit of work by Mixed Media and Mix It Up does she do in just unimaginably uh, rich yeah. and uh, skillful and uh, it's difficult to figure out how she does it. Why don't you give us uh, uh, your best shot at uh, an audio tease for uh, patrons to come and see her work over the holidays? Yeah, well, um, yeah, Elizabeth Turk is an unbelievably skilled technician when it comes to working her chosen materials. Her favorite material is marble. Again, uh, you know, marble has a long history in art. If you, if you think of Michelangelo and Bernini and so on, those great artists of the past, they worked marble in a magical way that made uh, this cold, hard material look like living human flesh. Elizabeth Turk doesn't represent human figures like that, but she, she does perform a similar kind of magic in that she, she transforms marble in a way that gives it the appearance that it's some kind of sort of rubbery, elastic kind of material sometimes, or it can appear like, uh, like lace, like a lace collar from, a, from an old uh, portrait or something, or, and uh, at times it looks like... Um, bone? Uh, bone, yeah, and bones and, um, and fossils. It's... Um, it's a very brilliant way of using this traditional material in a modern, abstract kind of way so that it's um, multi-suggestive. You know, the, th the forms that she creates um, don't represent anything in particular, but they, they seem to represent a lot of different things at the same time. And so it's very, a very exciting um, 
and um, quite sort of jaw-dropping uh, experience to see this work if you just think of how hard it was to, to make marble do what she makes it do. And many of these works are from found marble um, elements, correct? Yes, yeah, she likes to um, recycle bits of architectural marble that she uh, she scavenges from different places. She's she's um, she's used uh, columns, for example, that were um, discarded by the Getty Museum when they they did some <laughs> renovations there. And she's so she she loves the idea that um, these pieces of stone have a, a history and of a, a life maybe that um, began before she started working with them. And her own studios are right here in southern Orange County, are they not? Uh, yes, um, Santa Ana, I believe. Santa yeah. Ana, I guess, and San Clemente, I guess there's some kind of studio space there. And she has her artisan uh, assistants in there, so it's a, it's a just quite an amazing operation. And you can see some of that through some video loops provided in the galleries there at the Lagoon Art Museum. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this portion of the holiday review of goodies to take in is Executive Director of the Laguna Art Museum, Malcolm Warner. We're talking uh, right now about Elizabeth Turk on Sentinent Forms, her uh, installation there. And there's there's uh, other, there's drawings. There's, as I said, there's some audio-video components. And what else would you like to say about her? Yeah, well, there's, um, there's one room uh, of the exhibition that is kind of like a walk into the imagination of Elizabeth Turk. You know, it's, it gives you a sense of the way her mind works, and it's, it is a very brilliant and interesting mind. This is an artist who won one of one of those famous uh, genius grants, MacArthur you know. Fellowship, right? Yeah, the MacArthur Fellowship. Yeah, she. Uh, so there's a lot going on in there, and and this room, in its way, it kind of gives you an idea of all these sort of sparky ideas that are playing around in Elizabeth's head. Um, there's a you know a, lo a lot of her drawings, a lot of books that inspire her, scientific textbooks, not just art books, but. Uh, the, the you know illustrations in them are uh, uh, an inspiration to her. And there's a microscope. There are bits of shell and fossils. It's kind of a, a like an old-fashioned cabinet of curiosities. Um, this thing, but it really gives you a sense of what she's interested in, what she's thinking about, and the and the way her uh, imagination and the way her hand works too. Lots of uh, preparatory drawings for work. So, so that's that's a very crowded uh, room, but and very f uh, fascinating. You could spend a lot of time. Um, teasing out the ideas, you know, it's got. She she's written on the wall, written ideas on the wall. You know, it's just like a, a, her whole working process um, spread out in this one room of the show. So, and I I want to reiterate, as I said in the introduction, that there is so much to mine inside this museum. So, and this is an example that Malcolm Warner is uh, referring us mm -hmm. to. So, um, that is a wonder of wonders, and and in a much much different sort of sensibility is than the. Uh, California rural, uh, it's going to, it's representing the 1930s and 1940s of rural California, and that is, that's not part of the permanent collection, is it? It's a, this is on no, the, this is, um, this is a show that we've drawn from a, a large collection of mid-20th century watercolors in particular made in California that's formed by uh, a local collector by the name of Gene Crane. He's one of the finest collectors I've ever come across in my career. He's a brilliant, you know, put, just put, putting together work, concentrating on uh, a fairly small range of artists, but really collecting their work in depth. Anyway, so Gene is a great collector, and he's a great friend of the museum, too. And um, he's made his collection available for us to do uh, selected highlights every now and then on a, on a, a specific theme. Uh, this time it is... 1930s and 1940s watercolor artists in California who who um, dealt with um, rural subjects. Uh, so you get a, a, a great sense of um, the land uh, as it was then, rather different now, much less built up, of course, but yes. also the way the land was worked by uh, farmers and uh, so on, and the, the way it was lived upon. So it's it's the sort of show that has uh, its high level in an artistic sense, but it, it holds tremendous interest for anyone who's, who's into California history. And then the permanent collection of the Laguna Art Museum uh, that's assembled this time, this, this particular part of the collection, through January 18th with natured-inspired works by Frank Kuprian, uh, Anna Hills, and Edgar Payne. And I must say, this would take us all far from the matting crowds and the over-decorated season. 
my own editorial thinking there. And so what would you like to tell our listeners about what's on view here? Well, um, the, the Lisa Albuquerque piece that I was talking about before, the performance, was part of a big festival we do every year in November called Art and Nature. So to, to chime in with that, we, we did a display that's still on and will be on through the holidays um, of work from our own collection that um, highlights artists who are engaging with nature in one way or another. And um, some of them are the kind of landscape painters that you, you just mentioned, who were, of course, a, a very strong group in Laguna Beach, Frank Cuprian, and Anna Hills, and so on, Edgar Payne. Um, uh, but we've, we've also added to those more recent artists, uh, right, going up right to the present day, who are also inspired by nature. And this, of course, includes Elizabeth Turk. Um, nature remains... A, a very intense source of inspiration, even for artists who aren't literally just painting painting views anymore. Right. Yeah. So that gives you all, a, folks, a taste of the range of the time frame, the, the textured, the art uh, approach. And so we'd like then to move on into what is going to be going on after that. Once these particular exhibits are packed up, there will be an auction in February early. Yeah, that's one of our main fundraisers of the year. Yeah, on February the seventh uh, or eighth, I think it's um, it. We have February third um, to the eighth. Yes, or that's when we show the works that'll be on offer in the auction, and the auction takes place on Saturday, February the seventh. Okay. Yeah, so that that's a, a wonderful opportunity for collectors or would-be collectors to get some bargains, frankly, because you know we have very high-level works there that don't always sell for what they're worth. So. Uh, uh, there's a tip. There, there's a big <laughs> um, tip. Okay, and what's so th that's, yes. an, that's an event that's coming up in between the end of our current shows and the beginning of the next ones. But the the next show should be of interest too. Yes. In um, on February the twenty second, we open a, a whole new slew of shows, and we're, as usual, um, we're tr we're trying to get a balance between lots of different styles and periods of art in California, and um, to offer something to everybody. So we have a a show about Robert Henry, who's um, actually, a, he was a New York-based artist from the early 20th century, uh, but he's Californian enough for us. You know, our theme is California right. because he spent some time here. He, he painted in La Jolla, he painted in Los Angeles, and we've put together an exhibition of um, uh, works that he, he made here. They're, and they're, they're a fascinating picture of the, the population of California, Southern California at that time, because they're not... He, they're not commissioned portraits of fancy rich people necessarily. He he liked to choose his own people um, to um, uh, use as subjects, and he he tried to get a range of diff, uh, sort of a diversity. Um, so he painted genuinely uh, so. a, a, a Chinese family who lived in La Jolla. He painted uh, he had a, a a black kid who was a, a, one of his favorite models named Sylvester. He painted a whole series of portraits of Sylvester. He painted Native Americans, too. So it's a, it's a wonderfully diverse uh, range of subject matter that he had in his... It's all, all figures, um, wonderful portraits. They have kind of the format of um, wonderful, traditional, distinguished, uh, high-level portraits, yes. but they're, they're relatively modest people, um, not from you know, the, the top of society, but from the, from the middle. And this interestingly, so right from 1914 to 1925 is what he's yeah. capturing there. So right. that is it. So there's, as I said, there's something for everybody now and for later at mm -hmm. the Laguna Art Museum. And we want to thank for this round uh, for the of the holiday offerings the executive director there, Malcolm Warner. Happy holidays to you, Malcolm Warner, and thanks for your time today. Well, same to you, Claudia. Thanks very much. We'll be right back after a um, short station break with Frida Cinema Impresario Logan Crow. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. My last guest is Logan Crow. He's the founder of Long Beach Cinematique, a nonprofit organization steering Long Beach's now well instituted film-related events of the last five years, including Long Beach Zombie Walk, Mundo Celluloid, Midnight, seri Midnight Movie Series, and last summer's se series of classic films at Sunnyside Cemetery. <laughs> this year, 
the Cinematique opened their official permanent art house in downtown Santa Ana, which his board christened the Frida Cinema in honor of the iconic and uncompromising artist Frida Kahlo. We've already mentioned her today, so we get to do it again. The Frida is now going on its 10th month and has already screened over 100 features and short films from over a dozen countries and from as early as 1927. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Logan Crow. Hey, there I am. There you are. <laughs> well, you've managed to infuse even more culture in a stretch of Santa that is already nearly embarrassed with riches. Tell us about your beginnings your location, and how you select your movies that you present. Sure. I mean, the uh, the location is a dream. I mean, Santa Ana, like you just mentioned, is just teeming with creativity and art and culture. And, um, you know, I'm a big, obviously, advocate for film as an art form and film demanding its place and needing a home and needing walls to be projected onto. Uh, so uh, an art house cinema showing uh, art films and classic films, documentary student films, seem like a perfect fit uh, for that community and a missing piece, frankly. Um, there's a lot of different groups uh, that have embraced film and that have been doing film just sort of in their own pockets, on campus, et cetera. But a permanent art house sort of dedicated to that seven days a week was missing. Um, so it's been great to uh, program for the community and also to work with the community to provide our walls for their needs, you know, and their interests. And um, yeah. We're almost up on a year, and the audience keeps growing, and it's been wonderful. And you're there on Fourth uh, Street, there, right? At the yep. Sort. It's not the the sort of the northern sort of portion of the whole art. Right. It's right. yeah. It's three zero five East Fourth Street, which is between French and Spurgeon Street, over by the Yost Theater, um, up in uh, what the Calle Cuatro area or the East End uh, section of downtown. Calle Cuatro. Love that. Love mm -hmm. that. Okay. So and. And you you talked about how you sort of select them. So and the ideas you've devised um, another uh, special themed evening that was that was a successful sellout. Edward Scissor's hands, winter formal. <laughs> that was so, wonderful. Oh, so so that's an indication, folks. Um, they sold it out. So for the upcoming events that Logan Crow is going to talk about presenting, uh, it's it's incumbent, folks, to start lining up and get secure those tickets. So what have you in mind for? Uh, listeners who've got a little time off over the holidays. Well, we're opening Birdman this Friday, which is a phenomenal film for those who haven't caught it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that what'll happen a lot is, you know, we're able to get ahead of some films. We opened um, The Babadook, which was this wonderful Australian horror film uh, from director Jennifer Kent. Uh, and it was a huge hit for us. And then with films like Birdman that have already been released, uh, I find myself talking to a lot of people and you know, you'll see a film like that. And even though it hasn't been just so obscure that you've had to drive miles and miles and miles to see it, a lot of people haven't caught up with the art films. They haven't caught up with Birdman. They haven't caught up with Boyhood. So it's exciting every once in a while to program a film that maybe has been out a little bit uh, and let people know if you haven't seen this film yet, you must. It's here now. And Birdman's a perfect example of that. I mean, I've, I've met way too many people who haven't experienced it yet, and we want to correct that wrong. Right, <laughs> so. and you're set up with the, the right kind of speakers because the speakers are oh, yes. the characters in the movie. Yeah, we uh, we had a wonderful uh, fundraising campaign at the beginning of our operations, and uh, part of those funds went to revamp the sound system in our main auditorium, as well as to install the uh, Sony 4K DCP so that we can you know watch films in state-of-the-art sound and vision as well. So. All right. Some other films that coming up over the, the holidays. Sure. We're in the middle of our Christmas series. We Please. we were able to work with downtown Santa Ana to do a wonderful series of family favorite films outdoors. Indoors, we thought we'd be creative and do a series of films that are set on Christmas but aren't necessarily about Christmas. Okay. Uh, so that's included Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut all the way to um, Die Hard. Uh, that series is almost over tonight. We have Batman Returns by Tim Burton and uh, The City of Lost Children from France. And tomorrow we'll have uh, Gremlins. And So uh, wait a minute. Yeah. What do the first movies have to do with the winter They're stuff? set on Christmas. They're set on it. Yeah, so and what's funny I, about Die Hard, what's funny about Die Hard is when you rewatch it, uh, all the Christmas music that they incorporate into the soundtrack and into the score of the action to where there's sleigh bells playing okay. in with your your sort of um, expected 80s action soundtrack uh it's funny how uh, die hard specifically has emerged as sort of a cult christmas favorite okay that's uh, how little i know <laughs> it's okay. really interesting but uh and then so on christmas day but it's not an art film 
Die Hard. Uh, well, I don't know. Is it so okay? What? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's interesting. Well, and and that's interesting about art films, and that's interesting about you know uh, terms like that. You know, is yeah. is you know, is it uh, is is a film an art film if it's just from another country? Is a film an art? You know, things like that. Well, I have that conversation. Well, it really kind of depends. You know, and but exactly, it's like art. It's almost undefinable, and people you know come in with what they uh, bring in and walk out with what they take out. Uh, I would venture to guess a couple of people might argue that Die Hard is an art film. I don't. I think I'm with you on on the classification, maybe not being there. Okay. <laughs> but on Christmas, we're doing a, um, It's a Wonderful Life. You have to, I guess. Absolutely. And we're excited to do it with Spanish subtitles because it's a film that um, oh, my, yes. I'm Hispanic. My, my parents are from Nicaragua and Ecuador. And so I love talking to the community in Spanish when I can. If uh, And what's been really interesting is finding out how many people I've talked to have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and so we thought, let's play that one with Spanish subtitles and sort of open up um, new audiences that in, in both languages that have never experienced it. Play it on the big screen and gorgeous remastered digital. Uh, so we're doing that at one thirty p.m. on Christmas. Well, there's a lot of white bread that would love to. They can't push back from the table on that day. But <laughs> right. I would love that exercise. I want to read those subtitles and bone up on what those expressions are. And it's also it's yeah. I don't know when the subtitles were written. You might have the, an idea about that, but. Since it, it's it's a rather quaint American English, mm-hmm. it's, it's a sort of period piece, uh, so there has to be a period translator. So that's that, really interesting. I hadn't considered. That. I'm excited now to read them as well. Yeah, I've, oh, so I'm always fascinated by how how things translate. Uh, you know, the Almodovar films are so rich with wonderful Spanish cussing and insulting. Yeah, and you never get those translations no, no, quite I, right. <laughs> the little that I know, I know that much about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe I'm going to ask you just. Uh, I'm telling Impresario how to run his business, but. I, no, please. If you would do that same uh, package on Fourth of July, oh no, we're going to not be around. We won't necessarily go to the theater then, but uh, somewhere in the dead of summer, the, like on the 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 uh, summer uh, solstice, if you could play that or something, because I, I I want a chance to because I can't I'm I'm responsible for too many guests on the twenty fifth. Yeah, I it's a tough I day. can't make them all leave and watch that. So yeah. Uh, so that and so tell us, lead us through some more of the opportunities over the holidays, please, Logan. Sure. I mean the um well we're. Entering into the 26th and starting the new year with Birdman on New Year's Eve, you know, we wanted to get to do something very creative. We were getting asked by a lot of people, are you doing something for New Year's Eve? And again, my challenge is always fun to think, okay, how do we incorporate cinema and do something creative and thematic with what we do? And so for New Year's Eve, we're doing uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent New Year's. So we're playing uh, the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure at 10 o'clock. Then an hours of you know watching the ball drop, champagne celebration, and then the sequel, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, at uh, twelve thirty a.m. We're having an eighties DJ spin in the middle. Uh, it's been fun, sort of playing with the programming and making sure that we are um, screening films like Birdman, like Boyhood, um, that are critically acclaimed, um, you know, wonderful independent films, um, all the way down to much smaller films like Frank or We Are the Best from Germany. Um, but also mixing in uh, some cult and genre films for those people like myself who still appreciate being able to go to a theater to watch an 80s film, a film maybe they grew up Please. with, they grew up on, and who consider, you know, in sort of the spectrum of their life, um, a Blue Velvet from 86 as much of a classic as a Casablanca from the 40s because it's all part of that route that sort of formed our perspective on art and cinema. And increasingly with the blockbuster films edging out some of the smaller productions, I'm going to vote for getting Citizen Four in a themed uh, presentation because it it came and it went and I didn't get to see that. And that that for me was required viewing. So it's been on a lot of top 10 lists. I have not had a chance to catch up. So there's your theme there. So, yeah. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Ask a Leader is Logan Crow, executive director of the Frida Cinema here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in movie theater lobbies around on the web <laughs> and the world on KUCI.org. Well, now's a good time to talk about how you're helping pay for these whole package deals. So you've got a fundraiser going on. Tell us uh, what we can do to help you support that. Yes, we do. We have a fundraiser on, it's actually, you can see it on our website. It's at thefridacinema.org. The URL to donate is so long that we've created a, a tiny version. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash help hyphen Frida. So tinyurl.com slash help hyphen Frida, where, you know, we're raising funds to go into the new year. Uh, the winter months are always really difficult for art house cinemas in general. 
um, the there's a big push for uh, award season materials towards the end of the year. Studios sort of slowed down the first three months. We also are able to make a lot of our revenue organizationally from our summer outdoor series we do in Long Beach. That's on hold. So we're counting on the community and the public to help us. Okay. So you've got some wonderful offerings going into the new year. Mm -hmm. And I was so sorry to miss the remastered Hard Day's Night, but you assured <laughs> me in preparing for this that that was not my, our last chance. No. We so have, tell we, us what you have planned in January and about Hard Day's Night, among other sure. lovely delectables. It's funny. We're having our programming meeting this weekend. <laughs> so okay. what's what's definitely on the table is, um, and it's already on the website, is we're really excited to have a, um, there's a tour of the film The Last Unicorn, which is a wonderful animated film from the early 80s. Uh, a group has uh, fought and won to restore it digitally. There's a big movement now to restore these films digitally as print is starting to erode and companies aren't restriking prints, as, as I'm sure you, you follow that story. So they are touring this new digital print around the country and we're fortunate to have it Monday, January 12th. And we're going to have the film's author, screenwriter, who also wrote the book, The Last Unicorn, Peter Beagle, in the theater to meet his fans. We've got a fundraiser, uh, Symphony of the Soil, that's a partnership with Natural OC Magazine. We have our monthly Rocky Horror Picture Show presentation, second Friday of every month. Second Friday? Okay. Second Friday of every month. And, you know, in terms of larger picture things that we want to work on in the new year, we definitely want to work on an animation festival. We're looking for partners for that. And more director series. We had a Lars von Trier series that did well. Wow. Uh, we did all of his films. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, doing the same with Stanley Kubrick, David Lynch, Jane Campion. We've got a roster of filmmakers we want to cover like this. Okay. So everybody got the, those, um, the, the sites there and the location. It's at 305 East 4th Street in Santa Ana. And so what happens on the first Saturday of the month when all the art crowd the art walk sure. crowd uh, congregates there. Is that are you able to direct traffic to you and around? Or you, yeah, you, how do you work with that? We've done uh, that's art walk. So San, San, downtown right. Santa and art walk. What we've done in the past, and we're going to continue to do it, is we've partnered with local curators to create an art show in the lobby uh, and theme it to something that we're doing that month. So for Women's History Month, for example, we had an art show that was all female artists. Uh, for Comic Book Day, happened to fall on a, on an art walk day. We did comic book inspired art. We've okay. done a controversial film series that was wonderful. Uh, so uh, most of our art shows are tied in with cinema, and they're all locally curated, which has been really exciting. Wow. Yeah, what a great enterprise! I'm Thank so you. glad you're in town. This was my guest, my last guest for all the cultural fair for the holidays. Logan Crow, executive director of the Frida Cinema here on Ask a Leader. I want to thank everybody for listening as we bring this show to a close. I want to wish everybody happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, Happy holidays Logan. to you. Thank you. And we'll talk with you next week. Thanks, everybody, thank for you. listening. Thank you.